Hey, cue the theme music. <laughs> Good cadence. All right. <laughs> well, here we are. Early music Monday. In the early morning. With the man, the legend, Cameron Cavanaugh. And the gentleman and the scholar, Andrew Maxfield. So let's talk about line. Here's a little story. So I was a good little college student, which is to say I learned about music. Um, you know, I, I went Not to so subtle Harmony jab. At... <laughs> Whoa, where did that come from? So I, you know, I, I uh, went to my theory classes dutifully and learned all about the naming of things dutifully. And in fact, you know, I'd, I'd say that I got good grades the um the thing is uh you know i dropped in right in the middle of this idea called harmony as though it already existed Mm. and we were talking about voice leading Mm. like these systematic moves to move from a chord to a chord and i don't think i heard the word line until maybe a counterpoint class as an elective or something like that. And honestly, when did I ever really hear the word blind? I'm going to say it wasn't until after my music major. At least or, in terms of a concept. Yeah, as, a, as an essential unifying concept for, for, you know, like what we're up to. Yeah. And... So it was a big revelation when I, you know, I, I came around to studying counterpoint really seriously and counterpoint really obsesses itself with creating a line. It's like the study of the organic line. Like what is a, what is a a coherent line? And it was a revelation to me. So Mr. Kavanaugh, I'm curious when you, uh, as a, as a choral director, as a singer, Mm. as a, person who looks at at scores what does it what does a line look like through your eyes i don't know um (laughs) these are hard questions so i think i'm like you though my entire undergrad i don't remember hearing the concept of line i i Dr. Staley was a big advocate of finding and um, um, almost like uncovering and almost manufacturing the line and not, not in like a negative way, but sometimes he would create line out of nothing. It was kind of genius actually. If it was, mm-hmm. if it was just this chordal harmony, he would, create line itself and and it it, you know i I tend to think that it it, in my perspective it didn't feel as natural and organic a lot of the time but the concept of finding it and being able to pick it out of the music was definitely a new concept for me and something that dr staley put a lot of emphasis on it was really quite amazing so like 
if I were to go back into those grad classes and talk and like kind of quantify or just like clearly define what I see as the line, it's really hard to separate line musically from the text to me mm. because it's so if you're thinking about just abstract music it's a lot harder to identify the line i think because there's so much nuance and so many different like variables so like where's the peak of this melodic idea how how does the harmonic underlay influence the push and pull what intervals are being used between each step to also mm. kind of draw uh magnify amplify the push and the pull and so i think that it has a lot to do with this sort of when do we feel the sufficient tension and release of any given kind of melodic, harmonic, or really larger musical idea. Mm -hmm. So, so in on the on the paper, it's sometimes really tricky to just see it because you know. Well, this looks like a nice melodic arch, but there might that might not be line because mm. because it might that might be a small part of the line. But I tend to think that there's a lot, I think the long phrase and the long line are much more significant than the small minutiae of each individual moment. Yeah, so there's line at a micro level, yeah. like how is a phrase constructed. Right. And then and, there's and, line at, like, at macro, which is more like what's the narrative arc like what's yeah. the, the big line through a piece yeah, yeah. and i think that you know it, when we're talking about choral music with text the ma the micro line can really be manipulated to to you know you you put you put a little bit of dynamic emphasis on the strong syllable of a word and then you you kind of back away and de-emphasize the non-stressed syllable of the word mm -hmm. And right there, there's a little moment of micro line that you've created. Does the music enhance that ability? Are, are you, you know, think about Renaissance music. If the line is just this scalar motion upwards, well, that's naturally going to crescendo because higher mm -hmm. frequencies travel further. Do you add 10, 15% to that to just, to just make it so it's, that dynamic is intentional or, or do you let it do its thing as it comes down? Do you decrescendo with it? So those, those are some things that you can do to enhance a line, but creating one and identifying one that's already written into the music is not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I think it can mean a lot of different things. So when I um, started studying counterpoint seriously, um, with Philip Lasser, who is a previous guest on the podcast. Yeah. Um, he talks about counterpoint as the study of the organic line. And I thought that was mm. kind of an interesting 
idea because typically, you know, counterpoint is taught historically, traditionally, still today, usually through these short exercises right. where you have a given line called the cantus firmus, and then you are writing your own line to play with or against the given line. Yeah. And, and I, I asked him once why we worked in these shorter phrases and he said, well, um, what we're trying to master is one complete thought, mm. right? Like if you're going to, if you're going to write an essay of intelligent paragraphs, right. They start with intelligent phrases and sentences. And he said, and he, and he said, well, that that's, that's where it, starts and obviously the an, a counterpoint exercise is not itself a piece of music really but it's right. this constant inquiry into what is an organic coherent line and i thought that was fascinating partially because at that point i still didn't even really get what he meant by line and right. uh you know a lot of people think about I mean, not a lot of people think about counterpoint. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, come on, the masses I mean, are cares, flocking, <laughs> flocking to counterpoint courses. I, mean, the, I know the waiting list is like hundreds of students long. I know, I know, it's insane. It's insane. <laughs> um, the enrollment is just through the roof. Uh, <laughs> all these famous counterpoint classes on. Um, master class like steve martin i think was teaching a counterpoint class on, jack Black well, maybe it was counterpoint yeah yeah all-star counterpoint anyway uh <laughs> i mean so you know who the heck cares about any of this you know that's a different conversation but point is like um so you know counterpoint <laughs> is obsessed with like the creation of a line and i sat there for a long time thinking okay well what does that even mean because for people that that start doing counterpoint exercises it feels kind of mechanical because you know you start with this idea that okay you're going to put together a succession of notes and you've got some rules like um you know if you if you leap up you need to step down or if you leap down you step back up and right all things e being equal you know prefer scalar motion to uh lots of leaps uh right. you know if you're if you're engaged in the sus suspension over a bar line you need to resolve it and down then by step to a consonants right and only if you've resolved it to a consonants can you leap away from the consonants and all this stuff that feels you know like i am a music robot i will manufacture music <laughs> by following music making rules and algorithms and stuff and uh <laughs> but as you even say that <clears throat> i think of my students my ap music theory students <clears throat> their voice leading was so much better because we did counterpoint first because what you just said you have to follow these things that's just because you're you're looking at that at that practice or that um, process from the reverse side, from the you're looking at it through the back door. The audience, the listener, the singer, even the conductor 
a lot of times looks at it through the front door of oh this is really beautiful and it it rises and then it falls and i think i think the word balance has a big role to play in terms of organic line not just okay well favor scalar motion why do you favor scalar motion so when you make a leap it's more significant that leap is really significant and and what do you leap to you can only leap these certain things you can't leap a seventh you can't leap a major sixth because no one does that obvi but why because it doesn't first of all it's not it doesn't if you're jumping a major sixth, there's no tendency tone to that. If you're jumping a minor sixth up, that pulls you back down to the fifth. And those ratios are really primal, like we've talked about yep. before. The, the fifth, the octave, the fourth even, that there's this. So that's pulling at your human heartstrings because of the way our bodies are tuned. And so when you scalarly move and then you have a leap all of a sudden you've created this balance you have this t dissonance that resolves to a consonance and you have this balance yeah well i think that that sort of humanness is interesting because um you know if we if we take ourselves back a couple centuries to when these practices were being developed and codified you know in all these um, little trees treatises by the musicians of the day um you have to imagine that there was music making going all the time right you know right for since our you know our earliest days of clacking stones together and whistling and stuff like we've been making music and uh, um the music that people, you know, if you imagine like what were people singing, not maybe in the, in the church, but in the home, what was it? Well, it was tunes, you know, it was stuff yeah. that just held together, held together organically. And I think if you, if you think about folk music and tunes that come from the people, what makes them coherent? Oh, well, you know, it's kind of interesting because they not all the time but most of the time they follow similar similar um kind of guidelines and there's something like organic and human and coherent about a tune and i think right. a lot of people that were trying to, to figure out this practice of how do you how do you make something that holds together on its own well okay so there's there's some principles aesthetic principles to follow and that in a lot of ways, that's what became this practice of counterpoint. The thing that was really interesting to me as I started studying this is that I, I noticed there's a difference between an organic line and a melody. Yeah. Like, you know, the, you know, when you, when you think about Hildegard, for example, and you hear these long successions of notes at one level, but these long lines and they hold together elegantly um and uh they they feel intact they feel coherent they feel organic but in some ways i feel like they're not exactly the same thing as a melody the way that we think about it now right. um 
you know, when we talk melody now, we're often talking about something that feels hooky and memorable. It has a, um, a personality and a twist and it's something that, um, stands out sort of preeminently over the other stuff that isn't the melody. Right. And there's, I think of the word pattern too, like that there's some sort some sort of motivic characteristic. I, if people were watching this, they would have seen that really great hand twirl thing that I did. That was a really good motive gesture. <laughs> it, that's exact. actually how it is in the textbook. It just shows a little video. This guy. <laughs> when you're up there conducting, you're like, well, Spinning it's a motive moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, he's motivating, motivating again. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, but it's, it's really interesting because when, if you drop into studying music at, at the moment of harmony, where it's sort of a foregone conclusion that you have a melody and other stuff, right? Then, um, the difference between melody, which is has all these kind of standoutish qualities, and a line, which is a coherent musical thought, so to speak. It, that difference is kind of blurry. And it was really blurry for me because I kind of got what a melody was. Right. Um, but what I didn't get was how a melody, a melody is a line, but not every line is a melody. Mm. And if you start with the practice of trying to understand what an organic line is, to, a line is, and then you build from counterpoint into harmony eventually then you realize that voice leading is not just this kind of like um shorthand for the best way to stitch together a series of chord progressions underneath a melody under a melody yeah even if you if you even if you have a melody that's preeminent what you're really trying to do is make every voice into a compelling organic line that holds mm. together on its own right. And when you think about like the famous, like super boring alto part, right? The drony, endless alto part. I feel like that is a byproduct of learning voice leading without learning counterpoint. 100%. 100%. Cause, it, well, when you talk about it, it makes me think when you, th- when you say the word complete thought, when, if I were to like start a sentence or start a thought, <laughs> and then just leave it, <laughs> and then just leave it hanging, right? Yeah. Not not finish. Yeah. All of a sudden, y- we are like compelled to finish that line, mm-hmm. compelled mm-hmm. to finish that thought, and I think that that's a lot of the time, like you said, the melody can have that same sort of drive to to be completed mm-hmm. but but it doesn't it what am i trying to say if a individual part like you said does not have that compelling like oh where does this part go even if it's not like memorable or hooky or catchy Mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it's lacking in its line. Mm-hmm. 
because the whole point is to drive us forward even even in minimalist music that's intentionally not um ornamented or like very um like goal oriented right it's it's much more just like the same for forever mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. it actually does pull you in and drive forward even though they're almost intentionally not yeah it's yeah. so so i i think that yeah that's my thought well, i think it's complete yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well uh you know i like the writing example where if you're going to build a compelling essay out of compelling paragraphs you build compelling paragraphs out of compelling sentences and then sentences yeah. out of phrases right and right. if you think about a piece of choral music like, like you know these days it's it's a convenient shorthand to say well you know this is an satb with limited to vz and it's a uh, such and such difficulty um and these are all you know important characteristics but if you look at a four-part <coughs> choral work what you should see is a bundle of strong independent organic lines that drive you inescapably from the beginning through the middle to the inevitable end of the piece and you don't just have a soprano with some other stuff right you know what i mean you don't just have like a melody and filler what you should have or could have i mean i guess maybe that's a choice maybe i'm making it you know sort of an aesthetic judgment here but what what you can have is an alto part that is a succession of compelling organic lines you know phrases into sentences into paragraphs to the end same thing for the tenor and the bass and at different moments they all have their important high point their tension their release um where you know it's a little bit like the eiffel tower or something where you can zoom in and say well you know it's just a bunch of triangles you know and every little triangle is strong but then you zoom out you're like oh you know it's yeah it's a it's a whole thing. Like at the cellular level, it's composed of strong individual cells. And then at the organism level, it's, it's a vibrant organism because of line. Yeah, totally agree. And that's what makes it, if you think of all of then the voice parts together being a single line, it, there, it only really works well. I think and holds up when each individual part is also a very strong compelling line yeah. because if it's not the whole piece may be that way but it's not going to hold up because because your altos are going to hate it and the like yeah. there's going to be something about it that you may not be even be able to quantify or describe but there's It'll be maybe like a one-hit wonder. It'll come and be like, ooh, that was a cool, shiny thing. And then it will fade as time goes on because the foundation's not there of the line. So so that's why I think that... And, and I think that choral... Like having the text accompany the music is actually mm-hmm. a really 
strong eh, crutch isn't the word because it's not a crutch but it it's definitely like they work together it's this they they if if you're not paying attention to the text the line that is inherent in the text when you're writing the line of music it also won't hold up absolutely well i think that i mean that's what sets apart choral music right because when you're listening right. to absolute music or whatever you want to call this instrumental thing um, <laughs> right. you're hearing just the abstract create you know creation and summation of line right and right. and timbre and all of the other things that we we hear when we hear music um but with text the words not only create rhythm you know they've got rhythm embedded in them but they right. have the phrase level information of you know gathering and releasing tension they tell a story there's there's all of that information in the text and i think i mean obviously that's what makes choral music so exciting it's so beautiful right. is that it's got that like you know double right like two layers of frosting you know <laughs> yeah exactly it's so in your face it's like musical diabetes wow i don't know if that <laughs> description is gonna hold up well when you said two layers of frosting yeah okay it's yeah. where my mind immediately went right yes yeah that was a bad example should maybe i retract my frosting I think I re I'm going to retract frosting <laughs> or maybe we should, this episode is brought to you by, by frosting or two layers, little, little Debbie, <laughs> little Debbie. <laughs> diabetes in a package. Do you think little Debbie would sponsor our podcast? Probably who wouldn't sponsor our podcast. Let's be real. I know again, I know. the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people flocking to counterpoint class are all just like, they're going to break the server because of all the downloads. Right. And I want all those little uh, those listeners to go buy Little Debbie yep. products. This the Cosmic morning. Brownie. I'm telling you, the Cosmic Brownie or the Fudge Round. Those two, man. Oh, I like I mean, the peanut butter thingies. Like ooh, little the Nutty Bars are also good. Nutty, nutty Bars, that's what they're called. Also very good. I mean, My knowledge one of Debbie Nutty Snacks. Bar is good two nutty bars a little bit more dangerous three i mean then you're in coma territory you are so that would be like yeah i got nothing but choral music like music could be, like musical diabetes i think we just yeah did full circle one bar is just the music the other bar is the text together put them together you have nutty bars yeah okay well you know, we're we're sort of a work in progress as far as <laughs> metaphors go, but yes. <laughs> but little Debbie's sponsorship is going to make up the difference. It's true. It's total totally true. So you have a question on here actually that I want to ask you. Oh, okay. Because I think it's profound. Well, number 1 profound. Number 2, I don't know the answer. <laughs> like two layers of frosting. <laughs> yes. So, 
how do you develop line control? What is that? First of all, what the heck does that even mean? Mm. Because I guess if I were to sit down, when you were talking about Hildegard, I asked myself, if I were to sit down and just like try to compose chant, I want yeah. Okay, wait, I'm backing up another step. I thought about chant, some of my favorite chants, and it does. That whole, even though we're, it may se- seem like we're talking about melody, it really is just the whole sense of line. Because if you think of the opening um, cantor line of the chant, it mm-hmm. oftentimes goes up like a question. And then the next, the rest of the group comes in and then it kind of falls. Mm-hmm. But then how does the next line start? Well, maybe it starts on the, going back to the same quote unquote tonic, but maybe it starts on the fifth scale degree or maybe a different one. We, with the modes, it's all kinds of different in terms of our melodic and common practice ideas. But in mm-hmm. terms of line, it's the same exact concept of question answer but then that's just one small portion of it so going back to hildegard if i were she has the same thing but maybe not as clearly delineated but each phrase of the text that she's setting has that kind of well question response Mm -hmm. thought complete thought comma Mm -hmm. period yeah whatever but if I were to sit down and just try to write like a chant, it would be, as the British people say, utter rubbish. <laughs> because it wouldn't go in. I don't, I don't, well, I mean, it seems like, oh, yeah, it's just this unison chant. It's not that hard. But, man, to give it line and direction actually would take a lot of work. Well, that's why it's a cool exercise to try that. To, to try to write a monophonic chant line and to stay exactly within the mode, which, you know, Renaissance, pre-Renaissance, the mode actually told you the range of mm. a part two, which is a totally weird idea to us now. I mean, to say that something was in the hypodorian mode meant that the you know, the way that we would talk about it now, the D is the final and then it, the range, you know, would go up a fifth and then down a fourth above and below that D you might have an outer lying pitch. That's a little bit higher, a little bit lower, but it has this kind of centricity in the back towards the D and you would cover all of the pitches in that mode statistically you know every you know 20 or so pitches you'd probably be covering most of them and uh you'd give a little bit of preference to the final to the fifth above the fourth below you'd create these sort of um anchors so that it felt like it was completely at home in its little you know mode it's a little suit of clothing called hypodorian and it would have its um cadential conventions so that it's you know resolving down at the right moment um you know there's all these kind of like conventions for like how do you how do you write that that thing and i think that that's why the 
I, that's why this conversation is interesting to me because um, what you're doing right there is you're obsessing over a succession of pitches and asking yourself, how do I make these, this succession of pitch, like the most bare creation musically that you can think of, how right. do you make it hold together elegantly, organically, so that it feels like it's coherent? And like, if you're doing, you know, if you're, if you're trying to write a chant or if you're trying to do a counterpoint exercise, you can, you can figure out pretty quickly um, things that don't hold together organically. Yeah. Like oh, for yeah. example, if you, if you were to write, you know, do me, so me, do me, so me, do me, so me, do just like these successions of little leapy intervals. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, we would call those arpeggios, but right. you, it would be very obvious to you that an arpeggio is not a line. Right. It's just this, it's just this kind of like leapy stuff and it has its place. Like if you want to create a harmonically oriented passage that does not call attention to itself, you use arpeggios. It, it's right. like, it is literally just harmony stretched out over time um but if you if you want to write a chant if you want to write a counterpoint what you're what you're obsessing about is the succession of pitches mm. and pretty soon you start saying oh i get it if i'm going to write something that sounds elegant coherent organic it'll have a single high point a single low point it'll yeah. it'll gravitate towards its home uh, with its right. own kind of internal logic that closes up all of its own gaps, that doesn't leave these sort of weird, hangy pitches, and then you, and, and it, then kind of reaches that peak, the golden ratio. Sure. Right. I think I think of the 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 uh, Newstead, or um, not Newstead. What am I saying? Wow. Where did that come from? Sorry. Uh, Jepson, the Jepson text of 16th century counterpoint of, yep. you know, you, you should only reach the highest note one time in a melody. And then you, it should happen about whatever the ratio is of the golden ratio. Yep. Two thirds of the way through, and then it should fall back down. And, and he talks about writing a melody or a cantus firmus, but kind of like you said before, He's actually talking about writing a, a good line. Exactly. Not really writing a melodic concept. Yeah. Well, if you think about like writing a hooky melody, something that um, will be an earworm, that'll be right. you know, something that people walk away humming, it might do things that you wouldn't do in a counterpoint exercise. It might have like a lot of reputation on a single pitch or a cool, unexpected leap, or you would right. leap a seventh. There's a place, whatever. Yeah. And totally. that's all, all fine. There's no prohibition against breaking all of the rules of counterpoint. The rules of counterpoint are supposed to ground you in an aesthetic that creates coherent lines. Well, to make a line special memorable spicy different interesting mm. then you break the rules strategically for the purpose that you have in mind and because uh, they break the those 
aesthetic primal tendency pulling gravitational rules that's what makes them memorable yeah boom roasted wow that's amazing yeah yeah Yeah. but it all starts with the organic wine and i think what's interesting is to think about how different it is to develop a line than to just do voice leading oh yeah because voice leading you know you think about the way that it's typically taught and the way that a lot of music students experience this is that you you start with the foregone conclusion that there's such a thing as a chord and your task is to move from one chord to the next chord with as little motion as possible and you know use those common tones when you can and all things being equal double the right things right and that's what we think voice leading is but voice leading really should be excellent counterpoint where yeah. every voice is singable every voice has right. its own peaks and valleys and this sort of like energy that drives it inevitably from the beginning to the end that doesn't mean that every voice is a standout melody right you don't need that but you do need strong lines and you can always tell when you have music that doesn't have strong lines because you see your singers drooping they're (laughs) bored right right they're bored to death like you give altos that that like flat line thing in the middle like oh i know you know let's just have them stay on the d because um it's convenient for and we can't session of chords (laughs) and we can't cross them like I don't know where that idea came from of we can't cross like lines can't cross voice crossing is bad, which I can under from an educational standpoint, single sex repertoire of polyphonic music is really hard Mm. with when you're doing four or five part polyphony and it's in the range from middle C and an octave and a fifth above that, and mm-hmm. all five parts are in that range the whole time. It's really hard to hear. Like you, it's it takes some training to get your ear to to do it and to not be confused when people are below you and then above. But yeah, if if you train from a not just then from a conductor standpoint, but from a educate educator standpoint, if you can teach the singers how to recognize line and how to sing line, then all of a sudden you solve that problem. So then voice leading isn't a problem. I mean, it still might, oh, I'm an alto. Okay, no, I'm not an alto. I'm singing the altus line of this thing. That doesn't mean anything. That just means that it's this place in the order, the end. But my... Yeah, I mean, you asked earlier about how do you develop line control. And I think line control is developed by doing counterpoint, basically, by working in small abstractions where you say there's no, like, um, inherent, absolute, higher order good to never letting your voices cross. Yeah, no, big time. What you're what you're trying to do is maintain these kind of like layers or strata and say i'm going to have you know because there's like inherent vocal properties that we've sort of codified over you know over the centuries whatever you know if you want if if you want 
four independent voices, then most of the time you want them to be operating in independent strata because once they start crossing, if they cross in sort of clumsy, uncoordinated ways, then they lose their independence. Right. It's really, I mean, it's that simple. Like if you, if you have your tenors wandering down and your bass is wandering up and you're just not really in control of your material, then the, the listener's perception of those lines might just kind of turn into scrambled eggs. You know right. what I mean? The, the wall of sound kind of idea. Right. But if there's a moment in your piece where you want a note uh, like, it, you know, a note that could be high for your tenors or low medium for your altos. If you want that thing to punch through the texture and burn in people's ears, you're going to give it to the tenors. Right. Never mind where the altos are. And it and it's not just a matter of giving it to the tenors. You're going to give it in the context of a strong line right. that builds and <clears throat> reaches and then hits it and then pulls back down from it. And your tenors will look at you and say, this is better than my birthday. This is so much fun. <laughs> and the altos will look at you and say, of course you did. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but then you give it to the altos next, right? right. And, oh, 100%. You know, it's, not, you know it, it's just, and so you say, how do you develop line control? It's like you, you, you think about these kinds of issues. You don't plop your piano hands down on the piano and say, well, you know, let's go from G major to C major. And well, let's, you know, have some common tones because that's convenient. My thumbs are there. Um, right. Which, which is, you know, that's, you get a lot of keyboardy harmony and voice leading that leads you to conclusions like that. But when, you know, if you circle back to kind of what's the big frame for this conversation, the frame is at a, at a, a micro level, an organic line is a succession of pitches that hold together completely intelligently as a coherent, complete thought. And then at a macro level, you have like an organism level structure that you've built out of all of these smaller unit, complete Little thoughts cells. That, yeah. that just drive you through one line after another independent voices accumulating into yeah. something that's, you know, that we call harmony from the beginning to the end. And you wind up, I think, with music that's more singable, hundred percent more compelling, that has that narrative arc. When yeah. we started, and you're talking about, well, there's you know, there's line at a small level where you're kind of finding the stitch pattern or the the, the silver thread, you know, in mm-hmm. the music or whatever. And then there's line that's like the big line, the 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 narrative line. And I think that's where it comes from. You you, you notice what makes something unique and strong at the smallest and biggest level. And then you stitch together the, the whole thing. Yeah. And, and which, and, and, and when you stitch together the whole thing, you're, you're stitching together these independent, not, not just these little cells that you mentioned, not just horizontally between one part with, but vertically as well between the parts because you have different lines taking the foreground of the texture at different moments. And so then, and that, and that those things also contribute to the big picture line overarching. And so then as you're looking through the score, 
you, you that's what leads you to finally say, well, whose line is it anyway? But it boom. Drink. <laughs> End. <laughs> I heard a laugh in the background, so I think that that must be. Uh, you, you just got the gold star on that. I did. Delivery. I did. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if it was a laugh or a cough, but let's but. just say it was a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> awesome cool you know what we should talk about in a future episode texture what Ooh, yeah it's good just had that yeah. thought didn't want to forget like okay. the texture between <coughs> moose and cheesecake or yes you know, we were talking about the the different lines not crossing. I thought of like the the Tacanos, which is a restaurant for people who don't know, that chocolate <laughs> layer cake thing, and the the layers don't really cross, but they they kind of blend when they meet. And just I'm just clearly thinking a lot about sugar and chocolate this morning. But layers of frosting, layers. Oh, so many layers of frosting, dude. We should probably get Takanos to sponsor our podcast. We should. <laughs> they obviously would. Who wouldn't? <laughs> no one wouldn't. Okay, everybody go to Takanos. And then buy Little Debbie afterwards. Yes. For your double frosting diabetic double line choral music symbolic metaphor. There you go. No, let's talk te- texture next time. That sounds super interesting. Yeah, going to be really because talking to my again talking to my students about texture and learning how to define texture myself mm-hmm. musically is really difficult. But I think it could yield some cool some cool discussion. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, man. Rock on. Okay. Outro. Outro. Tro. Outro. 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 Did it. <laughs> okay. See you next time.